0: Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Gracious Father, in the power of your Spirit, as we come to you in your word, give us a greater view of the Lord Jesus, we pray, that our hearts might be filled with the words of worship that we see in the heavenly realms. Help us, as we tackle these visions, to have that uh, double view to, to to go close in and see the details and then to step back and see the big picture. Give us wisdom to know when to zoom in, wisdom to know when to zoom out. Help us take to heart the lessons that John would have for the church in his day and the church in our day, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you remember, we started this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, and um. I argued that this verse from chapter one is something of a theme verse for the whole book. I, I, I don't need to become, you know, become a tiresome exercise to keep revisiting it, but we will from time to time. I join your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. It, it's John's introduction, but it's much more than that. Chapter one, verse nine, it tells us something about what's going on in the wider church, and, and therefore what these visions are largely about. That verse, uh, we'll try and keep in mind, because it it grounds these amazing visions that begin in chapters 4 and 5. Uh, we can ask ourselves, why is John being shown these things? Why, why are they recorded for us? And the answer that we'll keep returning to is that these are visions of things that communicate central truths of the Christian faith that we, that we need to hold on to. So that, chapter 1, verse 9, we can patiently endure in suffering as we live for the kingdom of God. As weird and wonderful as we may find uh, some of these visions, I-, I want you to see from the outset that ultimately they are practical and pastoral. I- I've mentioned before as well that, that much of the, the kind of the details of the visions that we'll encounter, they're made up of images which we'll be familiar with if we are comfortable in the scriptures if we know the old testament the the apostle john isn't for example the first to be given a a glimpse into the throne room in heaven is he we have thoughts perhaps go back to isaiah chapter 6 or uh, ezekiel chapter 1 daniel chapter 7 these prophets were given visions which have some similarities some differences which we'll note because it's uh, significant i I won't draw every reference from these visions in chapters four and five back to those prophets but they are worth reading this background um we'll take our time through chapter four we'll speed up a little in chapter five and uh, um uh, 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 and our test is uh, uh, are we learning things which prepare us to keep going as we suffer for christ that's that's the measure of whether we've truly understood the purpose of these visions. All right, well, let's start in chapter four, and uh, we'll work our way through. Some it's somewhat workmanlike this evening, while we get into the habit of, or, or the pattern of these visions. After this, verse one, after this, it's nice when the writers do that. It's a clear break, isn't it? A marker, we're into a new section of the book. And verse one, we begin with a door standing open in heaven. This is going to be our setting then for the next couple of chapters at least. Joel is given by the Holy Spirit a glimpse of the realities of the heavenly realms of things that normally hidden to humanity we 've been studying and we Jane, uh, the Book of Job uh, in our home group. And there, at the beginning, do you remember of the book of Job? We're given that glimpse of the heavenly realms, of an interaction between the Lord and Satan, something not normally afforded at humanity. Certainly Job himself doesn't know it, but the book makes sense to us as readers because we're given that view. Well, John, the Apostle John here is given that view, but the term heavenly realms isn't specific enough. Verse 2, there's a throne front and centre. This is the throne room of heaven which is significant because, again, it helps us to understand what's going on here. It's, the Apostle John is not being given a, a tour of God's house. This isn't preparation for an article in Good Homes magazine. It is being taken straight to the heart of the universe, the engine room, the place where God rules over all things. This is going to be a vision about authority and power and rule and reign. Uh, Last week, Phil helped us to see from the book of Ecclesiastes that although God always acts with purpose and direction, often as mere creatures, we don't don't know the details of what that is. We just have to trust. From under the heavens, God's purposes might seem, well, not meaningless, that was what we were taught, but unfathomable, ungraspable for us. But we begin here in chapter 4 with an open door. What was hidden is being made known. What is beyond our knowledge is being revealed. Uh, the invitation of verse 1 confirms this. Do you see verse 1? Not come up here and I'll show you around the place, but uh, come up and I will show you what must take place. This is not a static scene that we're witnessing. It's rather a vision which helps us understand a process, an enacting of God's, Plans and purposes it 's that that John is being invited to see, and well, we need to go through some of the details as I prayed at the beginning there 's this kind of wise thing we need in the book of Revelation to know when we need to go close to the painting to understand the details and get the most and when we need to step back and just see the painting in all its glory. Well, in chapter four, we will go through some of the details and um, because it 's the first time we 've done this kind of thing. And we start with the Father's throne. Uh, John is showing a throne in heaven, a figure sitting upon it. There's no real description of what that figure looks like. Rather, John simply sees light emanating from him, light shining as from precious jewels, jasper and ruby, and a a rainbow shining like emerald. Verse. Where are we? Verse uh, 3. Here is the one, then, who is the source of light in the universe, the source of life in the universe. John has already written in the previous letter that God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. The Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 6, That God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, do you remember this? Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. Well, John can't see in any detail this figure, just this blinding light. We take you then, this is the person of the Father seated on the throne in the center of heaven, ruling over heaven and earth. Here is the center of the universe, the seat of power, the source of all reality. And the Father reigns. Uh, Around him, and uh, this is the second element, we get these... Uh, 24 secondary thrones, don't we, verse uh, 4, uh, 24 elders seated upon them. Uh, Joan was taking notes my first hour, and you one of those things I said we'd, we'd have to come back to is the way in which the book of Revelation uses numbers, and uh, this is a good time to do that now. If we could just kind of speed read through the book of Revelation we'd see, actually, wow, there's a lot of numerical values used in this book, uh, but some numbers are noticeably absent. Uh, Eight, nine, eleven, the numbers don't look at but the number seven, well, there's everywhere, 54 times in the book of Revelation. That suggests there's something interesting going on with the way numbers are being used in this book. I think perhaps the key is that, on the whole, numbers are used qualitatively, rather than strictly quantitatively in the book of Revelation. That's the key, I think. We do the same occasionally in English, don't we? we, we I've told you a thousand times, we say, or uh, there were dozens of people queuing for the bus. When we speak in these ways, we're not really talking about a precise numerical value, not, not, not about the amount of things, so much as the nature of of things and that's often how we find numbers being used uh, in the book of revelation we talked about seven being the number of uh, divine completeness or perfection didn't we to remember that god created all things and they were perfect in seven days and so the perfect spirit of god the holy spirit who's the fullness of god is called the sevenfold uh, spirit in chapter one and, and here also there are other numbers that we're familiar with if we're uh, used to reading through the bible often repetition is is made three times to emphasize something that's perhaps a reference to the trinity or may simply be stressing something so Isaiah remember in Isaiah 6 here's the angels call out holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty meaning perhaps something like the most holy God. And then we get the idiom, uh, the four corners of the earth in the Bible, which isn't uh, some kind of uh, weird means of trying to argue that the earth is flat, as some have argued. We won't go down that rabbit hole this evening, we'll save that for another evening. But rather, it's just an idiom to mean all of creation. We'll see the number four being used in this vision. And then there's the number 12. Which is prominent right from the very beginning of the Bible, as we, as we see the, the story of of the, the redemptive work of God, starting with the twelve tribes of Israel, and then moving into the New Testament with the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles of Christ. Twelve is the number of the church, and so of course twelve plus twelve, it gives us this impression of Old Testament plus New Testament. It is the church united in all the ages come together which brings us back to revelation 4 because remember there are 12 and 12 of these secondary thrones surrounding the central throne of god and they have 12 plus 12 elders seated upon them i take it that these then are symbolic angelic beings these are actually the the 12 apostles are they because john himself is still on earth being given the vision But what's important is that John sees the Father seated on His throne, surrounded by the whole Church through all the ages, symbolically with its New Testament apostles and Old Testament prophets. A couple of things our attention is drawn, um, verse four, uh, to to the Church. First, they're clothed in white; these elders, and Again, we're familiar with that image of white, aren't we? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, Isaiah chapter 1. Here is the church redeemed, forgiven. And secondly, not only are they seated on thrones, which of course we know is the seating of rulers, but they've been given regal crowns of gold on their heads. This is the redeemed church which reigns from heaven with the Father. We'll mull over the, the significance of that in a bit. Next little detail, as we as we try and squint closely to the picture, we see uh, the Holy Spirit. We, we we know that John writes very deliberately with a Trinitarian view of God, don't we? Chapter chapter one, I don't know if you remember, rich in the doctrine of God. And so here, the third feature is this: is the presence of the Holy Spirit in front of the throne, verse five, represented as. Seven seven blazing lamps of fire, the sevenfold Spirit of God. And you think to yourself, well, that's amazing. Father and Spirit, who's missing? Good question. We'll come on to him in chapter 5. And then verse 6, we have the sea, which is really perhaps, or well, quite unexpected because so often the sea, well, in the Bible, is almost never described as this quiet still mill pond if you read through the old testament the psalms and the prophets the sea is almost always raging the sea is chaos the sea is evil isaiah 57 but the wicked are like the tossing sea which of course is important and adds significance when we read in the gospels That Jesus cried out, quiet, be still, over the stormy Sea of Galilee. So often we teach our kids that it's a a demonstration of his power over creation. And it is, and that's a great lesson for kids, but it's more than that. It is evil and chaos being subdued by the Lord Jesus Christ. And and here in chapter 4, the the sea which surrounds the thrones is utterly calm, isn't it, verse 6? Uh, 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 like glass as clear as crystal that is the reign of god in the heavenly realms is demonstrably uh, perfect and orderly and calm the father seated on his throne surrounded not only by the lights but by rumblings and peals of thunder verse 5 all of this speaks of his rule in his reign And the calm sea shows that that rule is perfect in the heavenly realms. And then we come to these wonderful creatures, the four creatures. Which is significant because it throws us back to the visions, not of Isaiah, but of Ezekiel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 7. Now the four creatures, if you can remember... The four creatures in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 are very different. In fact, they emerge from a stormy sea. And when Daniel asks for an interpretation of what he's seen, he is told they, those four creatures represent the wicked kings who will rule on the earth. Now, that's not what we're seeing here. The sea is calm. And there's no idea that the creatures have emerged from the sea. So what is going on? Well... Chapter 4, verse 6, we're told they are living creatures, which is an unusual kind of bit of detail to add. We've been told about the elders. We presume they're alive, but we're not told. It doesn't need to be said, does it? These are living. And alongside the word creatures, it points to life on earth. One is like a lion, not actually a lion, is it? one is like an ox. One like a man, one like an eagle. Four living creatures, and we know the number four points us to all of uh, all of created all, all of the earth. I take it then that these four strange angelic beings represent all the creatures on earth. It, here's how the thinking goes in Genesis one: when you read the creation narrative, you find this really interesting distinction is made between first of all wild animals and livestock. That's perhaps not something we would have included if we were writing Genesis 1, but that's what we find in Genesis 1. And lo and behold, we have the lion, the wild, representing wild animals, and the ox, representing livestock here. And then back in Genesis 1, the creatures which live on the land are distinct from the fish in the sea and the birds of the air. And here, the third of our our living creatures is an eagle, representing... Well, I, I take it. And finally... Uh, Life on earth becomes complete, finally, when God creates humanity. And the fourth creature, well, really it's the third creature in order here, has the face like a man. All God's creatures, then, are on land and in the air, wild and domestic, even man, are gathered under the reign of the Father who's seated on his throne perhaps to note too that these living creatures are in harmony aren't they that i think we're not being given a glimpse back on the creation order before sin there's something i think about this being a vision looking forward to or speaking of a time when creation will be redeemed creation will be restored these four angelic creatures have wings as we expect any angelic being to have. But also we're also told they're covered in eyes, front and back. Verse six. Did you notice that eyes all round? Now, uh, eyes normally means uh, a kind of a uh, knowledge or uh, insight. A creature with many eyes is a creature from whom nothing can be hidden. Actually, that's not explained here, and quite why they are surrounded by eyes, I don't know. <laughs> i don't know but we step back and see the whole picture and the vision is clear as it? the father is seated on his central throne with this spirit surrounded by the church of all ages who reign with him and together there is being exercised a perfect rule over all creation Uh, Now, remember, uh, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, John is being seen what must take place. And I take it, therefore, that what, what we're being shown is that this perfect heavenly reign must finally be extended on earth. This is the purpose, the plans that must be fulfilled. Just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, you know how it goes, don't you, on earth as it currently is in heaven. here's the view of chapter 4 it is a perfect rain in heaven and the book of revelation will explain how it will come to be also a perfect rain on earth which brings us to the action in the scene these four living creatures do something don't they and what they do is key to this vision they say or perhaps better sing words of worship and john records in chapter 4 two songs for us the redeemed creation sings songs of worship, giving a glory, honour, thanks to God. The first worship song, verse 8, champions the character of God, the purity of God's character, holy, 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 a reference to the Trinity or simply a reference, a, a, a kind of a stress and emphasis on perfect holiness. And also something of the eternal nature of God's character, who was and is and is to come. It's a really simple song, a simple confessional song. Good doctrine, is not it? Doesn't it say something to us about how our songs ought to be in in the church on earth? Uh, Then comes the second song, verse 11, which celebrates not so much who God is, but what God has done. He's worthy to receive glory, honour and power for his work of creation. That's the focus of this song in verse 11. He created all things by his will they were created and have their ongoing being. It's a it's a delighting in a perfect God who has made all things. Which brings us to chapter 5. Same setting, but different elements now that have a slightly different story uh, to tell. First of all, John starts with this uh, terrible problem. It's the only thing that we see that's mm, where something is wrong in this vision. John zooms in on the right hand of the Father on the throne in the center of heaven, and the right hand the right hand you know don't you? The right hand is is power, isn't it? In the Old Testament, right hand of power, and in the right hand of God, John sees a scroll, in verse one, with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. Well, let's think about that. We know already about the number seven. It's divine completeness. This scroll is entirely locked up, we might say, by the Father himself. Written on both sides? Well, papyrus in the ancient world was made of woven plant fibres. One side uh, was a pleasure to write on, the other side was a nightmare because it was all bumps. The point being, you only use the reverse of a piece of papyrus if you if you absolutely couldn't fit everything you needed to say on the good side. A scroll with writing on both sides speaks to a, an essential fullness of what is intended, what needs to be said. And since the scroll is in the Father's right hand, we take it then that this is the scroll through which the Father's rule and reign is set out. Here are his decrees and promises, his judgment and plans, his purposes for all he has made. A scroll, that's wonderful, but sealed, that's terrible. Unattainable, locked up, unknowable, unactionable. And so, of course, John is distressed. Verse 4, no one is present who is worthy to open the scroll, which is to say no one is present who is worthy to bring all God's purposes to pass. It leads John to tears. Of course it does. But then comes the, 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 the glorious answer. And the answer is enough to dry up John's tears and give hope to the church in all, in all ages. Here's, here's the solution. It comes from one of the elders of the church, Uh, verse 5 do not weep see the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david has triumphed he is able to open the scroll with its seven seals this lion this magnificent source of power traced in the line of judah in the line of king david those are references we're familiar with aren't they that's that's the Messiah of the Old Testament that God promised. This Messiah comes as one who uniquely has the qualities that the Father looks for to open the scroll and enact all the purposes of God. John looks up, verse six. He, he's expecting to see, I imagine this great hulk of a lion, which, if you have a son, he doesn't keep a lion lying. we now close, they are. Their shoulders are' huge this great, muscular, pounding cat, but actually, and you know this already, don't you, verse 6, he looks up and he sees, not on lion, but a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Oh, my. It, 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 it's not a problem to be familiar with those images. It's a real tragedy, though, if we're unmoved by them, isn't it? it, it here is this, impossible image of one person who is two animals at the same time it it is the lord jesus christ in his divine majesty and power as lion and in his human weakness as sacrificial lamb It, it is power and service captured in one person And his entry into the scene, his presence, is enough to cause the world and the church, the the four living creatures, that is, and the 24 elders, to fall down in supplication and worship, verse 8. And now at last the Godhead is brought together as one, Father, Son, and Spirit. But all eyes are on the Son, fully man and fully God, who alone can enact the Father's will in heaven and on earth. It's enough even, verse 8, to elicit the prayers of the, the church on earth, the golden bowls of incense, and a new song is sung in worship to the Son. Remember chapter 4, that the song was about God's work of creation, wasn't it? Uh, And theologians often talk about God's two great outgoing works. Creation is the first. Redemption is the second. Well, chapter 4 is a song about creation. Chapter 5, then, is about redemption as the personal work of Jesus Christ is celebrated. Why is he alone able to open the seals of the scroll? Why is he alone able to fulfill the plans of the Father verse mine? It's all kept up in, swept up in the song. It's not just that he's fully God, but it's also that he's fully man. It's that that qualifies him, willing to give himself even to death on the cross, that the sins of God's people would be punished in full, that through his blood God's people would be bought for God from slavery to freedom. A people from, well, look at the song, from around the world. There's a fourfold frame thing. That's very deliberate, isn't it? Tribe, language, people, nation. All people, uh, that that is, uh, from all peoples on the earth, God's people are taken. And, And then verse 10, the blessings of this gospel of Christ. Not just that his church would be forgiven, but that they would live under his perfect rule. In his kingdom, knowing God as their father... And finally, when that that, that heavenly rule is made perfect on earth, they will reign with Christ, just as the church does now in heaven, remember, symbolized by those 24 elders with crowns and thrones. The, The overwhelming rejoicing in heaven is infectious at this point. We haven't seen them before now, but now an angelic choir joins in the song, and all the joy of the heavens is directed to the Son slain for his people he alone they sing is worthy to receive remember numbers are important power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise seven it's the perfect expression of what who alone is worthy of all worship the lord jesus christ alone and finally the angelic choir is matched to the choir on earth who sing to father and son and the singing continues as the world calls our men verse 14 and the elders and the church fall down in worship uh, i said at the beginning these visions were and we must see them a, a practical and pastoral now they're more than that <clears throat> but they're never less than that they certainly add to our understanding of the doctrine of the trinity Goodness, John, is, uh, every other sentence builds our understanding of God. Uh, chapter 5 in particular underscores our doctrine of the personal work of Christ, the God-man who was crucified for, for sin and raised to life. That They build our doctrine of the church. The church is those whom Christ has purchased with his blood for the Father. There's lots of silly debates that have gone on in the life of the church about whether or not he can hold on to us to the end. They even contribute to our uh, doctrine of worship as we see how central singing is, is as the church's response both to God's character and to his works of creation and salvation. There's a good grid, a good criteria by which we can assess modern songs. Perhaps more than anything, though, Do you see that these are practical and pastoral because these visions point a suffering church in the days of John and today to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, do you remember, John saw that the glorious Son of God was right there in the midst of his churches despite their suffering. Uh, Matt took us really carefully through the letters chapters two and three last time and we saw didn't we that Christ draws near to his churches speaking words of encouragement and challenge even in the midst of suffering and now chapters four and five we see that some excuse me is uniquely equipped to ensure that all God's purposes for the world and the church are absolutely worked out on earth seems to me the point is this that in a time of suffering, the most basic sinful tendency for God's church for, for people like you and me is to think that oh, the Lord he can't be in control this this can't be what God intended, the father can't be we wouldn't put it like this, but the father can't be on the throne, or if he is, nobody can fulfill his plans because this can't be his plan for me and for us in the church in this day. But John, do you see, he takes us to the throne room of heaven, and he shows suffering believers, quite the opposite is the case, take heart, he says, have courage, the Father is on the throne, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone will fulfill all God's plans and purposes, take heart, have courage, the Lamb wins. Let Father, we could uh, spend another evening just reflecting on these things. how much we, the church in this day, need a greater uh, a greater vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in his regal power and his uh, servant-like humility and sacrifice how our hearts need to be filled with that same joy and inclination to worship that the church in heaven and all of creation in heaven seem to uh, seem to have. Forgive us when our hearts become cold and dull. Forgive us when we think wrongly that you are far from us and uncaring, particularly in times of suffering. We think of believers around the world who are being persecuted even now, some of whom will lose their life for the cause of the gospel may we may they never lose sight of the fact that the father sits enthroned and the son will achieve all god's purposes for all god's plans are yes and amen in him may together the global church have a confidence that all things will be done in and through and for the lord jesus christ who alone is worthy of all glory and praise. Cement these things in our hearts. We are quick to forget them. Impress them on the hearts of your people who uh, really suffer terrible persecution at this time. And keep bringing us back to the book of Revelation that we would uh, take to heart more of the lessons that you have for us there. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.